Husbands Talking More or Less is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things media, movies, music, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Everybody and welcome back to yet another get. Oh, Jesus, I can't even okay. get through it anymore. Okay, Kevo. calm down, calm down. Right. I'm Kevo. I'm Nico, and I'm weeping. And with us, as always, as we are trapped in this eternal white hot purgatorio, is our friend Joey. Hi, I'm not weeping. Uh, we 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 are trapped in some sort of endless phoenix loop at this point. I'm the phoenix guy. What's happening? It's the death and rebirth. This this show keeps dying. Yeah. What if? I know that we're on part three, but what if there's a part four that we don't know about yet? Like, what if we talk? I mean, I know that we're toward the end of this discussion, but what if we're just like, hey, guys, second wind, part four coming at you. What if you're never what if I can never leave? Like, what if I have to stop all the other podcasts I'm doing just because I'm trapped in the dark? Field? I think I don't want this. I think six months from now, the three of us are going to be doing an episode of some completely different project. And we're going to find ourselves all of a sudden talking about 2019's Dark Phoenix. And we are going to be very surprised that out of nowhere, she has returned. I thought you were going to say in six months, we were doing Dark Phoenix part 30. And I was going to say, no, 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 that will not happen. But maybe we don't know. We don't know. I'm telling you right now, if we do a fourth part of this goddamn Dark Phoenix movie, I'm going to the last stand myself. Yikes. She's gone, but she's always with us. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that I couldn't help but notice. We talked more about the death of Mystique than almost anything. And that was something that they had very clearly made part of their agenda coming into this. Now, Joey, we talk about the fact that you're not a trailers guy, so you come into these things with different expectations. You come in with mm-hmm. a, a sense of fresh newness, a um, kind of like an open mind that can't be simulated by anyone who's seen a trailer. <laughs> You actually have the chance to enjoy the work for what it is, and that's kind of magical because it's almost like you strip away the cover. All movie posters look like the same goddamn paint-by-numbers now. It looks like somebody dipped a movie star in sand art, and that's what we've got. And then threw blue and orange at it. Yeah, Yeah, for real. But at the same time, I'm left saying, okay, even if I hadn't come in with an expectation, even if I hadn't known Mystique was going to die in advance— I was still going to be really disappointed by her death sequence because it's such an afternote. It was not the point of that scene in any way that mattered. Does it? Because, again, you're somebody who comes into these things very, I'm Joey and I don't know what's going on. It's nice to meet you. So for you. are You got it. You got it. I got it. Right. Exactly right. And so like when characters die, I just, I'm always fascinated. Do, do death factor, shock factor, death, deaths. <laughs> Does that work for you? I think it depends on the character. I think I knew this one because I this was one. So I guess there's sort of different tiers to my trailer blackoutness. Um, for the movies that I really, really want to see, 
I actively go out of my way to avoid everything. That is... And I feel like it's you know, smaller movies, but it's also bigger movies. You know, like new Marvel movies, new Star Wars movies, stuff like that, where I try to like not even see... It's hard not to see like images and headlines and stuff like that, but no trailers, no commercials, none of that. Then there's movies like Dark Phoenix, where I wasn't so looking forward to it. It was just like, a, oh, this is a big thing, a big shiny, flashy thing to see. And so I wasn't actively seeking out trailers, but I wasn't really kind of, you know, avoiding them. And so when I was listening to your show and you were sort of saying there was even, I think, the the preview episode for Dark Phoenix, the one that came before the beginning of this never-ending saga that we're doing, you had mentioned that, like, hey, we're about to spoil some things, so if you don't want to know what happens, skip ahead. And I just let it play, because I was like, I don't really care. And so I knew that you guys had sort of hinted at, you know, both in Facebook Messenger with me and also on here, that Mystique was probably going to die, or maybe it was a fake-out or whatever. So I sort of had a sense that was going to happen. It's It was a little... Not shocking, it was a little surprising, but also I knew it was coming. But I think, you know, I agree with you that it felt like the death was just a reason to get Charles Xavier, Professor X, and Magneto on the same side, kind of, in a way, right? Or, you know, these people who, everyone who, who loved Mystique in one form or another all together, as opposed to just, like, an end to that character. And it felt sort of like a means to an end as opposed to an actual end, and that was kind of a bummer. Other movies where something shocking happens, you know, the as we're recording this, Mike Manzi just messaged me, co-founder of the network, and he's messaging me about, and I, this is such a tangent, but I'm sorry, it's going to it's gonna have a point, Message me about the new movie Midsummer coming out, which is a new horror movie by Ari Aster, who did Hereditary last year. And Hereditary is like a few things in there that are like aggressively in your face, like what just happened? And I feel like if I had watched trailers for it, even if it doesn't give you the context, it just shows you like a loud noise or a sound or a shocking image or whatever, I feel like knowing that ahead of time going into the movie takes some of that away. And so for Midsummer, I'm sort of going in as blind as I can, like I did with Hereditary, because I want to go in as pure and as fresh as I possibly can, because it's going to give have the most impact on the movie. So long, short of it, yes, it normally works. For this one, it didn't really catch me off guard, because I kind of knew it was coming just because of this show and because of, you know, talking to you guys in general, but I think not knowing every detail, not knowing laugh lines, action scenes, deaths, romances, whatever, makes the movie kind of more exciting. And I feel like in today's world, where there's so, we all know so much, like, I think it was either the first Amazing Spider-Man, or the second one, the Andrew Garfield one, there was literally 25 minutes of trailer footage that had been released before the movie came out. Like, you could see a quarter of the movie or so, before the movie came out, and, like, why would you want that? Why would you not want to just wait? Like, if you know that you're going to love the movie, go watch it. Why would you spoil a quarter of it out of context, out of the story, you know, all jumbled up? Why why do that to yourself? I have a personal answer for that, at least, because, like, ever since I was a kid, I've always been kind of a media junkie. I always watched the HBO First Look special for every movie that I was excited about. I love trailers. I think they're really cool. I think that they are, you know, a nice way to get excited about something that you love. But I also view trailers themselves as a medium of art. I judge them, honestly. I look for things in a trailer like, how much footage are you putting out there? Like you put it out with Amazing Spider-Man. I hadn't heard that. That's wild that there was that much footage available before the movie came out via trailers. 
I pay attention to things like how late in the movie does this footage come? Are you completely spoiling what the ending is going to be with this shot? We made this point on the on the episode of MCU.html about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. The scene that was used in early trailers for Guardians was the scene where Rocket is explaining the nuke to Groot and like Groot isn't getting it and then he runs off with it and it's rocket is asking if anybody has tape so we can put tape over the death button that's from the climactic battle against ego Mm -hmm. so you know rocket who is separated from the group is going to be reunited with them they are all going to be fine that this scene has to still yet come that's so bizarre to me so i i definitely agree that there is a certain point and there are certain methods that need to be employed when you're making these trailers. One of the things that I love about most Marvel trailers is that they don't tend to spoil too much of a film. You don't tend to get footage from too late in the story, and they don't give you too much of the plot. There are, frequently are still surprises. I don't understand Simon Kinberg, like actively wanting people to know through the trailers that mystique died and that's part of why we talked so brazenly about it was the fact that he said we wanted you to know because we want you to know how serious this is but it sort of robbed one of the only actual dramatic moments from the film from anybody who watched a single commercial for it and it kind of calls to mind all of this two different thoughts the first thing it calls to mind is and I don't want to spoil it for anybody. The best joke in Ralph breaks the internet is trailer related, and so I will not spoil it. But that is one of the best meta jokes ever. Yeah. And number two, I'll never forget my sister and I being taken to see Hocus Pocus by my parents, and we're in the car on the way home, and we keep looking over at each other. And at one point, my sister goes, "Hey, do you remember the scene we wanted to see the most from the commercial?" And I was like. Oh, the one where like they're in the, the the convenience store and she says no time for snacking and she pulls either Kathy and Jimmy or Sarah Jessica Parker out by the ear. Yeah, there were scenes in trailers even as far back as when we were kids that were ultimately cut from the movie and my little kid brain just couldn't wrap himself around it. He was just like, no, my brain's broke. Why wasn't what I wanted in the commercial? And so we're sitting here talking about the overwealth of content that gets poured into these commercials. And I can even think of times where the best part of the commercial didn't even make it into the fucking movie. I think that's the other thing. There's two downsides sort of to trailers. And I also want to say, Kevin, to your point, like, I love trailers. I love trailers as an art form. You know, I don't know if I said on this episode that, again, feels like it's been going on since the dawn of time. But... My favorite videos that release each year are these like year-end top 25 best films of the year countdown. Like David Ehrlich of IndieWire does a beautiful one. There's a couple of people that I found through Letterboxd that do them. And they're essentially trailers. And they they are more spoilery than your average trailer. But I love them because they're artistic. They're beautiful. They highlight, you know, little moments, big moments. I think they're wonderful. Like, I love, love, love those. I love trailers as an art form. I just think the way that a lot of marketing departments use them, it's to get butts in seats. And to to show to do that, it's the best jokes, it's the biggest action scenes. And I think in that regard, it's exactly what you're saying, Nico. There's, either, there's one of two bad things that can happen. Either number one, you know, you've already seen the thing that's happening on screen. You're like, oh, I know that, like, for instance, Terminator Genesis, which is that most recent one with Daenerys Targaryen as Sarah Connor, 
I actually really liked. And I think that was another one that's sort of like Dark Phoenix, where it was like, I have heard nothing but bad things about this. And I went in there and I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. But my problem with it was that so much of it had been spoiled by the trailer. So like literally every big action scene, I knew it was coming. And so, oh, I know this is where the school bus falls off the bridge or whatever. Like, I knew that when the scene shows up when we're on the Golden Gate Bridge or wherever it is, I know what's coming. So I think in that regard, that's number one. But number two, if there's something in the trailer that you really, really love, like a convenience store scene in Hocus Pocus, you're waiting for it. You're like, I want to know how this fits in. I love these characters. Like, is it going to be here? And then you sort of you're taking yourself mentally out of the movie because you're waiting for a thing that apparently is never going to exist that was cut for one reason or another. And that's kind of a bummer, too, you know? Oh, totally. After the Genosha scene, I kind of feel like that was the point at which now the movie's moving at a pretty fast clip. I kind of feel like that's where everything starts to fall apart for the good guys. Jean finally meets up with Vuck and finds out all about her powers, sort of, kind of, and the cosmic force killed the Dabari, so now the Dabari want to use it to resurrect everyone. Okay, but now here's my point. The only thing we see the Phoenix Force do, or I'm sorry, this cosmic force do, is make people more powerful and also destroy in like a snapping kind of way, in like a exactly what they had Jean do in The Last Stand. So how do the Dabari people even know that this cosmic entity can do an unsnapping? is, I guess, the question. And there's all that stuff with, like, Gene, you're the only one it hasn't destroyed. So before they say, Gene, you're the only one it hasn't destroyed, the, I'm going to call him a general that works for Vuck, who dies unceremoniously, who has evidently been on Earth for some time, says that they're going to ready the way to draw the phoenix out in case... Nothing comes of that, and then instead, Vuck can just take it later. Ah! So, uh, Jean at that point decides to turn on the X-Men, and the X-Men go after her, and then we get the really stupid street crossing scene. It's like the world's most intense game of Frogger. No, Frogger's interesting. Fair. That sequence was a lot. It definitely has a moment that points to a lot of the problems with this movie, where Scott says to Magneto, if you touch her, I'll fucking kill you. It really felt like someone was trying to impress their 12-year-old cousin, and so they used a swear word. It was so awkwardly placed. It wasn't worth the PG-13 rating they must have gotten for using that word. Just don't use it. Because it would have been a better line of dialogue for a suspense thriller or a psychological thriller that this is supposed to be if he said something that indicated that he understood how to hurt Magneto. If he had said, I heard what Shaw did to you. I'll make you wish for that. I'll make, uh, you know, I'm going to send you to join your daughter and wife. You ready to meet Mystique? Like, if he had said anything that wasn't just, I'll fucking kill you. It's why we say that you can pull the X-Men right out of this movie. There's nothing inherently good about this script. And I don't want to hear, oh, it's an X-Men movie. No, there are some really fucking great X-Men movies, namely First Class, which actually has a strong, clever script. There is no reason Scott had such a childish line. And I'm actually going to step back for a minute because I'm saving all of my energy for when I have to scream that this movie is ableist nonsense. Well, the only thing that I can think of to point to before that is... You know, every X-Men movie since The Last Stand that had Magneto pull part of the Golden Gate Bridge to basically use as a weapon, there's always this big Magneto uses his powers to do something huge, and they've 
really escalated it every movie since First Class, where he lifts that submarine, and then Days of Future Past, he lifts a whole fucking stadium, and then in Apocalypse, he affects the magnetic fields of the entire planet and is making cities shake, and then in this movie, he pulls a subway car from out from under the street and uses it as a battering ram. Oh, 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 okay. That was, that was kind of cool, I, I guess. Especially after seeing him struggle with the helicopter scene, it was kind of a huge step down from previous films. Don't get me wrong, everything that you just listed is something Magneto can do, and each one of them was super cool. This was a huge step down. And his battle with Jean leading to... Okay, so then... <clears throat> so Xavier... I did think of more things I have to call out on. So then Xavier's like, Kurt, get me in there and then leave immediately! And then keeps asking Kurt to do more things instead of ever letting Kurt leave. Because Professor Xavier is a jerk. No, totally. But then that went nowhere. There was no payoff. And this is just, yeah, this is like seriously like, I, I this is like being edged and then somebody giving you a ruined orgasm. <laughs> I just can't even fucking handle this anymore. So the, the thing I really need to say that upset me so bad is when Gene makes Xavier walk. I'm jumping ahead to that because a lot of what I've said about this movie is a personal interpretation, but Gene making Xavier walk was actually offensive and ableist. It was cruel and uncomfortable, and it was not cruel in a way that was the next step. We had just seen her start to crush Magneto's head with his helmet. We had seen her blast her friends away. She had just hurt Nightcrawler. We had seen her attack Xavier. That ableist nonsense was not just inappropriate, but I do believe that it's possible that the makers of this film owe whole communities an apology for what was easily the most tasteless scene in an X-Men film since Simon Kinberg wrote in the I'm the Juggernaut Bitch meme, which thank you so much for reinforcing my whole thing that this has been a misogynistic franchise. And I think what makes it worse is that the movie tries to play it off like she's turning one back on him. That all movie long he had been saying, like, you have it in your mind to be able to block out what you don't want to think about. Which I guess, in a way, could be, what's the mental illness version of ableist? Ableist, still. Yeah. Mental health is still part of your health. But I, I understand what you're saying, like, psychologically ableist. I, I, I know what you mean. Yes, because... Because I feel like that could also be at fault there, too. Like, she makes him walk, she forces him to walk, or try to walk, or whatever you want to call it, because he had been saying, you know, you're strong enough, and he's sort of saying it in a sense that, like, you are powerful enough, which she is, to sort of do whatever you want, but also, like, that's not really how you get rid of trauma, it's or not how helpful. you get rid of... Right, and I think that's sort of brushed aside, because, like, I don't want to... Like, this, this moment is by no means good, and I don't want to not criticize this, because I think it's right for criticism, but I also don't want to sort of blow by the fact that, like, twice, I think, up to that point, Charles Xavier had said to her, you don't, like, just, just don't think it. Just get by, like, you're, you're strong enough, just don't think about it. And, like, that's, you know, that's a sort of a, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like, a, like an old time in the 1950s, like, you're a man, like, stuff it down, like, men don't cry or whatever. Like, that sort of seems like what he's saying to her, like, oh, no, you're strong enough, just don't worry about it, and you'll get through it. And, like, that's not good there. So I think there's a reason, like, I can understand why it was written into the script, because she didn't like being spoken to like that. Not that it validates it or justifies it. I think there's a reason why it's there. Like, it's not just, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. But at the same time, both it and the inciting incident that lead to it 
are not great, independent or related to one another. I gotta be honest, I'm like the mental health champion over here, and I'm just so proud of you because I didn't I didn't even see it that way. I kept looking at it because I'm too close to the subject material. Like he was encouraging Gene to use his powers. I hadn't even seen that he's trying to tell her to just be stronger than her pain. Oh my god, that's more ableist nonsense. And because it's a man to a younger woman? And on the one hand, like, it makes for interesting characters and characterization and characters that are, like, flawed people, but you took it really, really far, and if you want me to, like, take these characters seriously and and see them that way, you don't take most of the rest of your movies seriously. It's something that, from a more competent team and presentation, maybe could have worked a little bit better, but not not from this movie. No, certainly not. The most interesting thing is, I think other than... Yeah, I'm going to say it. I thought the train scene was probably the best part of the movie. So the fact that that was literally the thing that they added at the end (laughs) is mind-blowing. I would have not liked anything about this movie. You didn't like... I mean, we skipped over the fact that I think that it takes Beast... 12 minutes to cross the street? (laughs) No. Not by accident. Didn't skip by accident, that's for sure. Well, before we move on to the train, then, do you have any more commentary on Mutant Frogger? So, my my only idea is that I love the idea, and again, this is something that maybe happens all the time in the comics, maybe even happened in the movies that I don't remember, but I love the idea that Professor X and Magneto and their whole teams, their whole crews, their whole groups, whatever you want to call them, have to team up to take on this, like, greater villain, right? Like, it's kind of a... Maybe it's Crisis on Infinite Earths? I don't know. It's whatever you have, like, you know, enemy and friend, sort of a, for lack of a better word, a Fast Five, Fast and Furious Six, all the... These great, these cinematic classics that have, you know, good guy and bad guy teaming up to to, to take down a bigger villain that threatens them all, in this case... Gene and Buck. And I love the idea of that, and I just felt like this whole street sequence, there would be, like, a cool thing that happens, and then it'd be, like, two different cuts that then take Beast that long across the street, or, you know, just feels like everything's sort of running through slow motion, or running in slow motion, and I don't know why. Like, the idea is there, the parts are all there, just make it, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's the storyboarding, I don't know if they didn't want, and maybe that's, you know, Similar to what you're saying before, Kevo, about how like there's a there's a tight runtime already, and if we take the scene and make it from eight minutes to three minutes or whatever it should be, then we lose another five. But I feel like there's there's such potential here for this ultimate team up between these two groups, and then it just feels like there's cool stuff here, but it's also surrounded by stuff that's just kind of underwhelming. Part of the thing that like makes me like the I guess ragiest about it, yeah, the X Men and the Brotherhood team up constantly. There's always a reason. There's always a bigger batter, and we kind of got hints of that in the second X-Men movie. We got bits of it in First Class. We got kind of like a tang of it in Days of Future Past with the future stuff. And hell, we got it in Apocalypse when Apocalypse's team partially turned on him. And just wasn't worth it. Just wasn't fucking worth it. And then all the stuff on the train where everybody's teaming up and they're trying to fight the you know, Dabari scrolls, and I, like, some of them could, like, get hit by a thousand machine guns, and some of them were like, a shoelace, no! Yeah, no, seriously, I did not understand how much it took to kill these opponents. 
that was certainly very confusing. To harken back to something you said a moment ago when you commented on how this was the strongest part of the film for you, which I agree with, and how you can't believe that this was one of the latest additions. It's funny, Sophie Turner actually agreed with you. She felt that the original version was not strong enough in the first place, so she was very glad about the reshoots. I have to imagine, instead of being taken by the military, they would have been captured by the Dabari and taken to some kind of, like, Dabari ship, and so a lot of the sequences and sets probably would have stayed mostly the same, except... It would have been a spaceship, so like probably something looking like a space train. I, I'm not sure. I really don't know what the involvement of the U.S. military would have been, though, at that point. Or would they not have been involved at all, and is that why their contribution feels so shoehorned and hollow? I feel like their contribution is meant to be the thing that reinforces the idea that the X-Men had been beloved for a very short period of time, as evidenced by Xavier's connection to the president. And this is meant to be another layer showing us that in 1992, the X-Men are becoming enemies again. But there's no real payoff for that. They just seem like an evil paramilitary group. Yeah, like, it's really more like the X-Men were beloved for nine years and then had a really bad week where everyone all of a sudden hated them again, and then we don't really get any indication of where the world is left and how they feel about mutants after that. We see that the school is reopened, but they don't talk about anything else really, and a bunch of mutants just got round up to be taken to a mutant detainment center that apparently existed this whole time. That's... What? While I think the fight sequence on the train is pretty pretty good at times, I really like Storm. Storm's the best part of this fucking movie. I, I'm going to sing that actress's praises forever. She gave such a compelling, incredible performance. Alexandra Ship is just... She just brought it on every level I could have asked her to. Yeah, for as much as I said that Storm doesn't contribute much to the story... Her characterization is still great. The parts that she contributes to the fighting and just the team element of the story are really amazing. So before I begin shouting about the last thing I really, 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 really hated, <laughs> Joey, did you have any last vestiges of sanity? I don't think so. I think that uh, I, I think that I've had more to say about this movie than I thought I would, and I uh, I feel like I have completely emptied my brain of Dark Phoenix. Oh, wait, no, 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 no. There's one more thing. We didn't get there yet, but the final, final scene, after everything happens and they go to France? Oh, yeah. Spain? Oh, no, trust Somewhere? me. Paris. We're gonna get there. I promise. But I need to, uh... <sighs> okay, so Kurt's, like... I think we've made it very clear that Nightcrawler is, you know, not just one of Jonah's... Not just Jonah's, like, favorite fictional character, but one of my favorite X-Men ever. And Nightcrawler becomes a priest, and Nightcrawler is a man of God, and he's a genuinely kind, warm soul. In fact, any time they show Nightcrawler in other universes, they tend to make him hardened and angry to show us that kind of contrast. So showing Nightcrawler go on a murder spree was the dumbest shit I've ever seen. Also dumb. I keep saying that they've killed five named characters, four of which I could say were women. Might count, because we're just about there. So I'm cool with it. I believe the death count is Red Lotus who was one of Magneto's lackeys. If he didn't die, we just don't see him for a good portion of the film. Red Lotus is an awesome character from the comics, so it was great to see him. The woman whose power seems to be creatively holding a knife, her name is Celine, and when I say she's like Phoenix powerful in the comics, I'm like barely exaggerating. Celine could really give Jean Grey a run for her money. 
And Celine is like, could best Doctor Strange levels of powerful. And so for Celine to just get like pushed out of a train car, frankly, I didn't even get what her name was. And there is pretty much no debating that literally everything about her death was to further a man's story. She shares a look with Magneto before she dies, and then her death is what makes him fight harder. That's almost literally the definition of fridging without the refrigerator. So, yeah, that bothered me. And then, of course, the other deaths being Mystique, Jean, and Vuck. Uh, oh, and Jean's mom. Oh, so I guess six people die, and five of them are outwardly women. Great, great, great job. So, I don't know, I just don't have more for this. Jean fights Vuck, who has part of the Phoenix Force, which she took from Jean because Jean wouldn't go all sorts of evil because Scott was there, and I guess if Jean gets horny, she just can't be evil. So, there was just no reason it was Scott. There was certainly no reason it was Scott in this franchise. I think it's one of the many things that the writer was relying on the fact that we know so much about X-Men canon, and that there is so much, and that it has such a history that people just know about Scott and Jean. But like, no, you needed to develop their relationship and make us care about their relationship, which you didn't really do in the film before this, and you certainly didn't do enough of in this film to make that final moment significant. I cared a lot about what I saw as an X-Men fan and knowing these characters, but it's like I was saying earlier, I don't know what someone who doesn't know anything about these characters and their story and their history, I don't know how it could have resonated the same way for them. So, Jean kills Vuck by putting, like, you know, more force into her, and... When Vuck is like, you're gonna kill all your friends if you do this. Gene just flies into space and explodes in space, which isn't that far from part of the Phoenix Saga story. I just wish she had gone into the middle of the sun. Yeah, I just wish it hadn't sounded like Vuck's last words were Chloe Weber. It was like, horrible. I was so mad. And the voiceover, oh my god, I mean, Buck was just a terrible villain. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna flat out say it by the end here. Buck is just a terrible villain, so I just laughed and enjoyed her being defeated. The film ends with a rather pathetic whimper, because it's literally two scenes we've seen before. Everything at the school is hunky-dory, and everyone's gonna be okay, is the end of Days of Future Past. And it's coupled with the chess scene. Feels like a reference to Last Stand, where again, we see Magneto end the movie by playing chess. I feel like ending the film on a scene between Xavier and Magneto really does summarize how this movie was not about Jake. Well, and Joey made a point of comparison with that scene in another film, I believe. It is the ending, in a way, of The Dark Knight Rises, where I was expecting Catwoman and Batman to be behind them and then to turn around and be like, oh yes. There they are. Like, it's Alfred's ending to The Dark Knight Rises, but just now with another person and chess. They should have put lookalikes at a nearby table. That would have been deeply entertaining. It was, it looked like, the lighting, the color scheme, the staging. It might have been the same cafe. Like, everything was identical. Like, I don't understand. Like, ah, uh, I'm not, like, frustrated by it. I'm just, it's, it's almost approaching a level of, like, admiration. Like, how are you this unaware of everything that came before oh my god i thought you meant it was approaching a level of admiration these filmmakers had for dark knight rises you meant no no not at all no 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 i'm admiring these filmmakers i'm admiring simon kinberg for like just having his head so far in the sand 
to like not know that you know the, how similar they look. Yeah, like Do another you not another watch other movies. Yeah, whew, I don't. I don't even have words. Like I, I can't. I, it's it's um it's amazing. It is literally the definition of amazing. I am amazed by this ending. I'll be real. I have not really seen any of the Nolan Batman films. The Batman Begins was put on at the beginning of a hookup once in my youth, and I did not pay attention to any of the movie. And then I did not see either The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises, and yet through pop culture and the internet and memes and clips on other things, I'm fully aware of what scene you're talking about. And especially for another filmmaker, maybe it was purposely an homage to the end of that franchise. I don't know. I can't imagine it would be anything else. Otherwise, how are you so unaware? But you see, theirs takes place in the past, so they did it first. And really, because you'd never know it from all the set pieces, I found myself marveling at this, this whisper of a whimper that they ended the film on. Yeah, it was cool seeing Gene in the sky. It was really nice seeing the raptor for one second. But is Gene just like an airplane now? Is she just like, is she like a satellite? Is she just like hovering around? Well, what's really funny is the Wikipedia summary ends with, as they start playing, a flaming phoenix appears in the sky. And the way that that's described, especially with how Wikipedia articles work, that could sound so much more significant than it is. It really is, like Nico said. It's almost, like, so small that it could be like an aircraft. I feel like some people might have even missed the phoenix up there from the final scene, especially those who just walked out as they sensed that the film was ending. But so small, and like you said, it's one of the many ways that it feels like this franchise just went out on a whimper when it really should have been a cosmic-sized bed. And I feel like, and you might have just said this and I might have missed it, but I also feel like the earlier, like a scene or two earlier where Jean kind of supernovas in the sky into Phoenix, like before the very end when she's just flying around like a firebird, like when she supernovas, it's not, like it's pretty clear is in the shape of a phoenix, but it's not like explicitly clear. I can Like I feel like, I feel like they're just, they're like, here, did you see it? Like, we snuck it in there for you. But, like, they're being so overt about it, but they're not. Like, it's this weird, maybe it's practice versus execution. I don't know. But it's just it's strange. It reminds me of a commentary I saw somewhere else, and it speaks to the heart of the way that the people who have built the X-Men franchise over the last 19 years have always dealt with the more comic-y aspects of the source material where they sort of keep it as at arm's length and sort of try to say you know we're a comic book movie but we're not a silly comic book movie but there's nothing wrong with being a silly comic book movie i think if anyone has proven that in the same period of time that they've been making these movies it's our first project the mcu who the climax of their finale film involved a giant Paul Rudd pulling a one-armed Hulk and a raccoon out of rubble to join this cavalcade of people like a lady on a flying horse and Tony Stark's secretary. It's it's what she was, and I don't mean to reduce her. She was also a CEO. I'm really glad you brought up another Disney project like Endgame. I just wanted to take a moment since we finished the film, I just want to draw a couple of parallels. A lot of people have been saying that, oh, Disney's trying to destroy this film. I want to make an interesting parallel. Just a few weeks ago, another movie received just as severely negative reviews from critics, and that was Aladdin. However, Aladdin went on to receive 
phenomenal audience scores. Audiences really reacted positively to Aladdin. So despite really negative reviews, Aladdin wound up being an out-of-this-world monster hit for Disney. They made crazy money on this thing. They're not always out to destroy anything that doesn't get a great review. And I believe the comparison between Aladdin and Dark Phoenix, especially with their identical posters, I think that really does say something about what what really happened here. One was a bad movie, one was a good movie. There's nothing wrong with liking a movie that is less popular. But people are getting a little protective of this movie, like, you know, fanboy-ish about it. I don't know, because so much of this movie we said was explicitly for fans, and then so much of it we said was for people that aren't fans, and then we said certain things were to upset fans, and then we said certain things were to make fans happy. Who was this movie for? That's a really great question, too. I don't I don't understand necessarily who this film satisfied, and it's hard not to feel like some of the people that are defending it are only defending it to go against the grain and to take a stance but what is there to take a stance on in this film you know i can't believe we just talked for two hours about this fucking movie did we talk longer than the movie is i was seriously just about to say that i wonder i think we did i think we broke the i think we broke um i think we broke the runtime and really interestingly this is longer than our discussion on everything longer than it this would be the shortest runtime of any of the episodes of phoenix in terms of watch content because everything was six or more episodes or three or more films this was just one movie well this is the thing that we'd really been building to this whole time as fans ourselves we were already pretty aware of all of our feelings on most of the phoenix content there were only a few things that we hadn't seen before to get a sense of we were really building toward has there ever been and will there ever be a good adaptation of the dark phoenix and this was the one that we weren't sure if would get it right i know that i for one had been holding some amount of hope out like joey and i said earlier it didn't let me down any further than i expected that's for sure And I'm going to say something a little weird. By far the best adaptation was the animated series. The animated series itself was not great, but they really did the Phoenix well. And all said and done, at the end of this project, and you know, Joey, I'm so happy you were on for the last episode of this project. That feels so awesome, especially that it's the last two. That's great. Well, I... thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And I'm also happy that you guys will not be talking about these movies anymore. Yeah. And next week, you're going to be going back to something that you both enjoy. Yeah, we love. We love passionately. And, you know, Kevo, Joey, you guys have any last thoughts on The Great Phoenix? No, no, I do not. I don't have any thoughts on Phoenix. I just kind of wonder how Maria Menounos isn't aging. She's in all of these AMC commercials at the beginning of every movie. (laughs) And I swear to God, she looks the same that she did when she was on One Tree Hill in 2005. I don't know how she does it. Maybe she's the phoenix. She has the cosmic force. I want to say that after doing four episodes of X's for Podcast about the Phoenix Saga, and now six episodes of HTML, Jean Grey remains my all-time favorite fictional character. She is the embodiment of my greatest desires and fears to be more powerful than I can believe that it's already in me. and to at the same time not understand that power and 
I believe in that regard, as we discussed on Nexus for Podcast, the Dark Phoenix Saga was a happy accident. Jean was never meant to die at the end. In fact, originally the Dark Phoenix Saga and the Hellfire Club were intended for Captain Marvel, well, Ms. Marvel at the time, and it went to Jean when that story was rejected for Carol. And it was just such a beautiful, happy accident that the editor didn't notice what was happening and didn't realize that he'd let a book go to print where Jean ate a planet. And now she had to die. And the Dark Phoenix Saga was a truly beautifully happy accident. And you can't remake a beautiful happy accident. It's just not how it works. You can touch on pieces, you can touch on themes, but the truth is the Dark Phoenix Saga was a powerful culmination of a character's 18 years in fiction and a five or six year growth from who she was to what she would become. It was done by a man who saw limitless potential in women when no one else in comics did. It was drawn by a man whose hand could put so much personality into every line. And it was a labor of love by people who knew what it meant to love fiction they created. Everybody trying to adapt the Dark Phoenix Saga is trying to adapt a work of love. It's very difficult to recreate someone else's love. And all said and done, nothing for me will ever be Dark Phoenix Saga. The original by Chris Claremont and John Byrne will forever live in my heart as one of the best experiences of my life every time I read it. These adaptations are fun. They're occasionally terrible. They're occasionally excellent. None of them were completely bad. None of them were perfect. Not about comparing them to the source material, but objectively looking at the works as a whole. I really thank everybody for coming on this 10-episode journey through my favorite character in her darkest moment and... I can't wait to get to what you could consider the second Dark Phoenix Saga. Here comes tomorrow and Planet X toward the end of Grant Morrison's new X-Men. But that's another conversation for a very different time. And a very different show. And until we get there, Joey, where can everybody find you? You can find me at cageclub.me slash Joey. You can check out Too Fast, Too Forever every other Tuesday, where my co-host Joe Two and I watch a Fast and Furious movie every two weeks and talk about it with a new friend. And somewhere down the line, some two very special friends may be joining us for an entire lap, so stay tuned for that. And then every Friday, alternating, my co-host Mike Manzi and I go through the works of Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise on Hanks for the Memories and Cruise Club. So just poke around at cageclub.me and find everything you need to know there, including everything else you're about to hear plugged. And you know, I'm so excited now that I know that there's like a bad guy, good guy team up in Fab Five Freddy. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Well, as though though the first thing that you hear in any of the movies being a BT song was not enough to get you excited. I don't know. I don't know how more to explicitly say these were made for you. Well, now that they've got Jason Statham, The Rock, Ryan Reynolds, Idris Elba. And didn't they just add another incredibly hot guy like today? John Cena. They also John have Roman Cena? Reigns. Roman Ch- oh my I mean, God. there are, so there are, there's objectification of women to be sure, but there's also objectification of men. And it's just honestly a bunch of very good looking people doing very crazy things in a lot of movies. And I think that there's a lot for everyone to enjoy. I'm excited. I look forward to them being my cinematic X-Men. Kevo, until we find ourselves in a speeding car barreling towards some new project, where can everybody find you?
You can find me on Twitter and, and ooh, ooh, ooh. you can find me on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram at Kev O'Reilly, K E V O R E A L L Y. You can also find me on the Facebook page for this show, Husbands Talking More or Less, on Facebook at HT, at official HTML. You can also find all of the really cool work that Nico and I have been doing for the past several years, telling inclusive and diverse superhero stories over at KidRiotComics.com. Nico, where can these folks find you? You can find me in my bedroom curled up with my copy of Here Comes Tomorrow. Uh, did you think you'd live for every little speck? Until you find a way into my bedroom. Oh, that went weird. Until then, you guys can check me out on amazing shows here on this great network like now and again we're along with my best friend from childhood chris podcasts yes that has always been his last name they're actually named after him so <laughs> we uh we no so now and again which is pop music x is for podcast which is comics uh with our amazing boyfriend jonah and kyle and dylan and the cast of hosts on that show has grown so exponentially i'm so lucky to get to work with such a talented crew they're my x-men like kevo said you can catch us over at kid riot comics you can catch me on instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n all right next time you hear us we'll be back to covering the mcu thank you all so much for coming on this journey with us to the white hot room and we'll see ya see ya i've been wondering what noise a chicken nugget would make and hope you'd make that on the last one it sounds like this <laughs>